Pilots have seen things most people will only dream of. Your host, Jeff Lively, has had his fair share of time in the sky and has plenty of stories to tell. Here on Leaders of Aviation, we're speaking with others in the aviation industry to get their insight and inspiration. Together, we'll gain knowledge to pursue our goals. Life's a journey. Enjoy the flight. What is going on, guys? This is Jeff, your host for the Leaders of Aviation podcast today. Joining me is Mr. Luke Lehman. He is a former A-10 pilot, a former Delta airline pilot, a defense contractor, but most importantly, an entrepreneur and investor. Luke, welcome. Hey, Jeff. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you doing, sir? Super excited to be here. It's a great day in Charleston. Awesome. That that's great. So, Luke, let's go ahead and, and take us back a little bit. You've you've got a, a an incredible resume, and we I, we the the viewers want to know how did you get started, and uh, you know, take us back to high school. That's actually the starting point, and maybe even a little bit further behind that, Jeff. I I recall the earliest of my childhood having my parents chase the lifelight helicopters. You know, if you ever saw those running around was in central North Carolina, they would land, you know, you'd see them coming in and, and I would chase them down to the hospital. And the idea was I, I would see them take back off. Right. That was kind of the idea. And I, I had a couple of interactions with those folks and, and it was just always so intriguing to me. First off, I mean, I've never flown a helicopter, but I think they're absolute death traps uh, for, for all the helicopter pilots out there. But I was intrigued by it. And those guys, by and large, come from Army Aviation. So that was the foundations were, you know, if you want to go be a pilot, you should go to Army Aviation and you should go do the warrant officer route. So that was actually where it started. I did my first solo flight sometime around 16 years old or something like that. I didn't get my private pilot's license until I was 22 or something like that after college. So, but that was the foundations. And, and from there I went actually into the army ROTC before I figured out that officers don't actually fly that long. And I transitioned over to the air force ROTC at that point. Awesome. Very smart choice. I've done uh, I don't know if you know, uh, I was, I am an uh, Apache helicopter mechanic um, mm -hmm. getting out this year, but I also did ROTC. I've decided not to commission, um, but that's another story for another time. So anyway, uh, where, where'd you go to college? I went to North Carolina state university. Very cool. Okay. What'd you mean? The most, most troubled football team in ACC sports, I think. Sure. What, what was your major? Well, major was a funny thing. I was a textile major. Um, I started off as an aerospace engineer major before I figured out that I wasn't very good at aerospace engineering. And then I figured out that it didn't require that to go be a pilot anymore. So once I figured out what the Air Force cared about was simply GPA, I, I transitioned to textile. It's actually called, I think it's called textile and apparel management. I just colloquially refer to it as underwater basket weaving. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. I, I did a short stint at Penn State University and uh, I was in Air Force ROTC for one semester. And I remember my, the, the major there, um, he, that's the first time I heard that phrase underwater basket weaving and it's always stuck with me. So yeah, uh, that's great. So with, with air force ROTC, you know, I know some of the viewers or listeners are going to want to know a little bit more about what it takes to do air force ROTC and, and kind of what that program looks like. I probably not the best to talk about it. Is it, you know, been 20 years ago at this point, but you know, it's a, it's a great thing. There, you know, of the three commissioning sources to do ROTC, you still get to be a college student for that piece, you know, so it's a few hours a week kind of thing. And then somewhere around the midpoint point of your college career, you go take a couple of weeks off and um, 
go to summer camp, you know, school yeah. for school for officers there 30 days. And, you know, I think I, I did it in um, Del Rio, or, um, where was it? Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas at the time. But it was a great, it was a great experience. You know, the, I did it in, um, right around 9-11. So I graduated from college in 2002. So, you know, at that point, there was a, there was a period in my life for putting on the uniform that, that morning we showed up for 9-11 I was in a uniform and they said, you know, take your uniform off because we didn't know what was going on. So it was a very, it was a very interesting time. And then for me, I, you know, spent the rest of my career at war, you know, for, for by and large. For sure. Did did that, so when, when 9-11 did happen, did that like fuel your, your like being in, in, in the ROTC program, did that just make you even more patriotic and wanting to, you know, really serve your country even more so? Hard to say, Jeff. I, I I don't remember having a overarching one way or the other. It doesn't. It never. I knew that I wanted to go fly jets. Um, I, I was not one of the guys that said I want to go be a fighter pilot. I just wanted to fly airplanes. Um, and I don't remember it having a a specific consequence on on my desires. You know, at that point, my identity was just that of a student and an aspiring aviator. But I think that by by that point, it really, it made it more tangible. And then you, you began to see some of the conflict actions where we actually were, you know, deploying, going to war. And it was like, okay, I can actually I can begin to taste what that might look like in the future. Absolutely. So now you've graduated, you've commissioned, what, what, what did that next step look like? Yeah. Off to Del Rio, Texas for that one. Um, back to, back to um, Texas for pilot training. Uh, I did, uh, let's see. So UPT was, uh, T6s for me. So I was one of the first classes that flew the T6s and then off to the uh, T38s after that. Um, there goes an airplane right now. Um, off to the uh, helicopter, probably one of your guys. Uh, off to the T38 after that. And then, and then um, they they said, what do you want to go do with yourself? It was actually kind of a joke. I had a squadron commander that said, okay, we, we sped your minds up from a 200 knot air, airplane to a 300 knot airplane. There was, you went from T6 to T38. So I'm like, okay, Luke, we're going to slow you back down 200 knots. You're going to go fly the A-10. So that, awesome. uh, that was kind of the joke of that. So yeah, from there, I went uh, back to North Carolina to go fly as part of the Flying Tigers. Awesome. So A-10, when, when you knew that you got selected for the A-10, what, what, you know, how, how did you feel? Well, I didn't know, you know, at that point I wasn't an aviation nut. I really didn't know much about the A-10. One of the things that I really enjoyed at pilot training, one of the things I was really good at was low level navigation. So I could fly around at 500 feet in the T-38 at 400 knots or whatever it was and find my way. And that, that was fun. Um, I didn't, I, you know, I probably had to do some research at that point about what even the A-10 mission was, but, but really having the depth and the clarity around, what an attack airplane in the air force was designed to do and and it being built around a you know 30 millimeter gatling gun that was that was quite the experience and and i love the airplane i love the airplane love the community we we often coin ourselves the blue collar fighters because we're always willing to roll our sleeves up and get dirty but it's an incredible incredible airplane and and, you know resilient and obviously a a death dealer for sure i've I've heard a very similar it, it I guess, you know, with the Army, the Apache, I've heard the Air Force's Apache is the A-10, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, ground troops, support, just anyway, yeah, the, the Burt sound, right? That's right. <laughs> also, how, so how long did you serve? Well, I'm still in technically. So I, I was an active duty um, officer for about about 10 years, and I'm still a reservist. So I, I, I still actively participate in the reserves. Uh, as a pilot? 
No, I haven't flown in the reserves, you know, as an entrepreneur, the time commitments to go fly airplanes are just too robust. And as much as I, much as I enjoyed that life, it just wasn't something I wanted to really pursue in the, in the civilian sector and as a reservist. Okay. Very cool. And I know that game as, as a reservist, I've, I've been in the national guard my entire military career. So I, I completely understand uh, that, that lifestyle. Um, Great. So when, when did you start um, not transitioning out, but transitioning from that active duty lifestyle to a more uh, prominent civilian role? So, you know, in the, in, in the air force aviation world, the first opportunity to get out was the 10 year mark. It took, you know, 10 years of initial service commitment. So you really have to decide at that point, are you staying in or getting out? That was um, 2014 for me. So there was a lot of opportunity in the airlines and I, I made the decision to go, um, to the airline route. And, and, you know, the game there is go be an airline pilot, go be a reservist at the same time. And, you know, use those first few years of low airline pay to go um, still be in the military, but that didn't last very long. I, you know, I, I had, I've always had an entrepreneurial bug. I, I you know, back to being 14 years old and, and chasing around lawnmowers in the neighborhood. I always knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And once I got out, it just be, kind of became a natural trend trends, you know, transition for me to become that next, next level of my life. Cool. So yeah, let, let's kind of go down that, that path as well. So 14 years old, you're, you're chasing that entrepreneur dream going door to door mowing lawns, you know, uh, what, what, what other ventures and things did you try to get into over, over the years? Man, everything. I am, I've sold literally everything. Well, except for like mortgages and life insurance, I guess, but I've sold everything. I, you know, I, at 14 years old, I think, I think it costs, I think I charged 20 bucks to mow a yard. This is central North Carolina in the middle of summer. It's hot. You know, it's, it's a, it's a warm day. I'd push my lawnmower over there and then the weed eater and I go make 20 bucks. Well, if you do five yards on a Saturday, you can do it in five, six hours, right? It's a grip of cash that 14 years old, you got a hundred bucks, 400 bucks a month. I don't have anything to spend it on, right? You can't go blow it at the arcade. So, um, I sold, man, I, I did like luminaries, you know, you put those like candles out in bags. I sold oh, those yeah. things for like two bucks a pop at Christmas time. I, anybody that, you know, anybody that would come off a buck for me was my friend. Um, and then I, I just have always had the entrepreneurial spirit. Obviously that mid portion of my life for, for a lot of folks that were out there doing entrepreneurs stuff, you know, starting businesses, I was flying jets. There's not a whole lot of, not a whole lot of side hustle when you're out there flying airplanes. Sure, like sure. So when, when did that, um, I guess, become more, more serious per se? Probably, you know, probably about the 10 year mark in my career. There, there's a, there's an interesting component and your audience may find this quite interesting is that aviation starts to get boring. You know, it's, it's hard, especially, you know, for, for folks that are not yet in it. They're like, oh, I would never get bored of flying airplanes. Really? It's like, have you ever gotten bored of flying or driving a car? Exactly. Because exactly. it gets boring. And I think that I, I recall a circumstance being in Korea one morning and I was it was an early morning flight. And, and I had um, I just found that I wasn't paying attention anymore. You're at 18,000 feet. You're two miles from the North Korean border. You know, it's, it, it, we're at war with North Korea. And I was absolutely not giving any cares in the world anymore. And I'm like, all right, that's it. You know, time to go. And, and I took another Air Force assignment after that. I did an exchange with the, the Marine Corps and the Navy. But I knew at that point that that was not going to be what the trajectory in the future held for me. Um, I always thought that the airlines would be conducive to entrepreneurship, that I could just, you know, 
go do my 14 days a month in the airlines and be an entrepreneur. And, and what I didn't understand was it, was it was the other way around. It was the problem. It's not that you couldn't have a side hustle from the airlines. It's that you can't have a side hustle from your business. You know, you just, you got to go out there and make that a priority to be able to grow and scale your business. For sure. So, um, what, so when you were flying uh, two miles from, from the North Korean border and you just didn't care, you know, what initial business thought popped in your mind? You know, what, what was that first, you know, Hey, maybe this is what I want to get into all kinds of stuff. I, you know, I had, I had a guy that I flew with whose father owned, um, I think they were like Sonics or, or I think it was actually Sonics and Taco Bell. So I'm like, okay, I could just franchise, he, you know, come up with a plan for this. And then the first business I ever started as an entrepreneur was actually an executive coaching kind of business. I thought that I thought there was some component of being a fighter pilot that, that resonated with the um, um, civilian world. The irony of this is that at that at that point in my life, I lacked the confidence, and I thought, well, okay, I can't I can't go coach someone else on the debrief construct and what it you know what it might mean to be a fighter pilot, high performance coaching, all that stuff, because because I've never been a CEO, and therefore you know I, I won't be able to relate to them. The irony of that, Jeff, is that you know a dozen years later, I found myself coaching that same you know, to other CEOs. And, and the, the joke of it is that I already knew at that point, I knew enough and I had enough experience to be able to do that. What I lacked was the confidence. It wasn't any level of caliber of understanding or, or depth. It was just that my self-confidence was so low that I thought that I, I wasn't entitled to go walk into a boardroom. And now, now when I walk into boardrooms, I see that they're just as dysfunctional as any other, you know, human being in the world. And, and they have their own challenges and frustrations and they in the components of high performance leadership that we employ in the military have very much application. So, you know, it's just a, it's kind of a full circle thing. I never, that never came to fruition. I didn't do any of that stuff in the beginning. So, you know, with that self-confidence quote unquote issue, right. When, when you were first beginning, some of the, some of the listeners might be like, man, this, this is a fighter pilot. How can he not, how is that self-confidence? It's a, and I know we know it's a totally different confidence, whether it's from flying and, and doing business, but can, explain a little bit about that, you know? Yeah. I, I think that self-confidence is situational and it comes and goes. I mean, at, at 40 years old now, I am much more confident in some aspects of my life than others. And, you know, the way that I, the way that I approach high growth and leadership is that I'm always looking for the next level and I'm always looking to be a little bit more uncomfortable. So when I get to that position where I'm actually experiencing the growth, I get, I get constantly uncomfortable. The only difference now is that I can see it. And I, you know, I recognize the sensations. I recognize the feelings and the emotions that happens inside me that goes, that's, that's a feeling and a sensation that I've known, you know, for a very long time, but same, same thing, you know, this fear of inadequacy, I, there is sitting in a T-38 for the first time, getting ready to light the afterburners on that thing. And maybe there, there's a significant amount of, af- of, of an inadequacy there and fear. And then you add when people die, right? Like, I mean, just go back and look what was happening in 2003 and you can find a pair of T-38 crashes or more. And it's like, okay, so I could go die today. And all of a sudden like this fear comes in, that's real fear. But, you know, fast forward all these years is that even starting businesses, Leaving Delta Airlines, leave, you know, leaving the airlines and coming back and saying, I'm, I'm going to transition out of this career. I've, I've experienced an enormous amount of insecurity. Um, I, I just think the difference is that at 20 years old, I probably did a better job of hiding it 
not that that's a characteristic that I would recommend to someone. I just did it. Um, and that, that, that level of almost, um, it's, it's a fine line between arrogance and self-confidence, right? As you, you know, you, you, you become that next version of yourself. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, as, so as you started the transition with, with the business or into, into the civilian world, what was like that first, um, you know, I use the word successful as a big word, right? Um, what was that first successful venture that you finally got into? Well, you know, the, so I still own the business today. I mean, you can go to the internet and you can check it out. I, I don't really advertise it. It's a defense contractor business and I'm still very active in it. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about that is that I, the, the way that I got into the business was simply through relationships that I, and because I've always done that, I'm always looking to connect the dots. I would call that one of my secret weapons is that making the connections, you know, Jeff, you and I may do that at some point. We we may connect the dots at some point and find business ventures together, but by always paying it forward and adding value into my relationships and my transactions, I was always able to have opportunities. The, you know, the interesting thing now is that I just, I see them more here at this point in my life. I see how to monetize them. And I, I see where cash exists and where opportunities inside the market are not being um, acted upon or where demand is not being met in the market. And it, and it happens everywhere. People overthink this business thing way too much. You don't need the world's sexiest idea, best, greatest invention. You really just need a good service-based business to go out there and fill a gap for something that's that's not being met. And you know the irony of that is there's plenty of people doing it. And this is, this kind of goes back to, you know, Jeff, when we talk about scarcity and fear and anxiety and um, you know, all those things that come up as entrepreneurs is that there is abundance everywhere. There's plenty of opportunity. So when I go back to the first contract, I, I didn't, I didn't have to make someone else a loser for me to win that first contract, you know, for someone to write me a first purchase order and to do that first uh, transaction didn't mean that someone else had to lose. And I, you know, it's like, what would you do? Somebody, you know, the, the age old question, what would you do if you were starting over? I'll tell you what I would do. I would go to a population center that was experiencing ma massive population growth. I would go to the edge of that population center and I would replicate the business that was the most profitable because as people expand, you know, I love, I love this example, lawnmower. You know, if you're going to go into, I just left Raleigh, North Carolina, and I know this is a tangent, Jeff, we'll come back to it in a second. Who, if you're going to buy a $700,000 house, $800, $900 million house in Raleigh, North Carolina, do you mow your yard? Probably not. You're probably not the person who mows your yard. Do you want your yard mowed? Yes, you want it to be manicured. Well, the irony of that is if I were to go into downtown Raleigh, North Carolina, and I were to start a business today, I would have 30 competitors that already had momentum. And that momentum is key to success in a business. That means I'm trying to break into a market. I'm going to try to do organic advertising and I'm trying to build this segment, establish relations with realtors. Guess what doesn't happen on the outskirts? On the southwest side of Raleigh, North Carolina, there are no current service providers because they're already there. But there's a person who shows up who doesn't yet have a service provider 
available. And you can immediately put that plug in the hole and then you can own that dominance in that market. And I would do that time and time and time again. And I would not get sexy about it. I would put um, barbershops, hair salons, nail salons, dry cleaners, you know, everywhere on those major population centers. So that's, I just told you my secret to success. You want to know how to succeed? Go find yourself a service-based business and go look and see where any one of those major national home builders are building and put your service-based business right there. Yeah. And going back to what you had said too, like so many people overthink it. It Really, you just have to take a a business that's already well-known and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just give better service, be a better provider of that service, right? Provide value to the customer. Boom. I mean, it's it's simple, right? It's not not anywhere near as difficult as we make it. And, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck in this concept of scarcity. And it's like, well, you know, I can't, I can't win in this environment because there's already too many people there. And it's like, well, if that were true, then there would be no room for business anywhere else in this world. And, and, and by and large, you've already neglected the fact that someone just retired. I love, I love looking for retirees. Most business owners don't have succession plans. Their, their kids don't want the business. I do though. So, you know, and, and this isn't a podcast about, you know, how to buy and sell businesses, but when I go out there and I look for businesses, I just look for an owner that wants to retire and we can talk later about how to buy and sell businesses. But, you know, the idea there is that, that there is a vacancy and as people get older and start to retire, move out of the area, that there's an opportunity there everywhere. For sure. Have you bought any businesses? Yeah. Multiple. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very cool. Um, I want to backtrack just a little bit too, with, with, uh, going back to aviation, um, transitioning from the military to civilian, right? I know you get all your ratings with the Air Force. How did that look like with going to Delta? Well, there's a funny story that I don't mind sharing this stuff, Jeff. We kind of open book there. You don't get all your ratings. You got um, from the military, I got well, you get nothing technically. You have the ability to get a, an equivalency rating. So I started out as a commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot. But but the problem was that my multi-engine rating was a centerline thrust restriction. So I actually couldn't do much with it. So when it was time to go get a commercial rating, I actually failed my ATP check ride. I hadn't flown in three years. And um, you know, my last failed check ride was flying um aerobatics and T38s and pilot training, right? I think I blew out of the top of the mold, went 400 knots or something like that, but um, military operations areas for your civilian listeners. But it's pretty funny when you're, you know, going straight up in the middle of a loop and you bust out of the top of the airspace. It's, it's a good way to fail. That was on my birthday as well. <laughs> Just <laughs> very memorable. Uh, but I failed my ATP check ride. You, you know, that's that's the thing for aviation is that again we just kind of get in and it's like, well, that's a you know you're you're done. You're never going to get hired because you you know you failed a check ride. That's not true. There, there's plenty of opportunities here. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've up and up until right now, every every uh, license that I've gone after, I've failed one portion of the check ride. Right. Sure. And I said. I kept going. You keep okay. going. You have to. Yep. You know? if, okay. if, you, if I just sit down and go home and mope and be an armchair Facebook, I hate my life, you know, what good does that do anyone? So, okay, very cool. So, um, after you got your ATP, um, Delta immediately or 
what what did that look yeah, like? Yeah, pretty immediately for me. I mean, just the timing. The thing about going to the major airlines is that timing just matters. And um, my mom was pretty fortuitous. I did all the right things. It took me about eight months to prepare and went through interview preparation, had my applications together. You know, for for the airlines is they 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 really just look for precision. They want it to be correct in your application. And um, but yeah, I went I went to Delta right away. Okay, what where did you do your ATP training? Uh, that was in San Diego at a, okay. at a local, local okay, school. Cool. cool. How long did you do a uh, uh, Delta airline? I was at Delta for less than a year. I, I didn't, I hated it. The, you know, the concept to me of closing the door and I did seven thirty-seven was torture. You know, the, the story, the, the final straw for me was I had a young child at home. And I, as I left the, the, their idea of the trip was to go fly to Phoenix and then you would, you would stay the night in Phoenix and then deadhead home the next morning. And they were going to get you back to Detroit where I was based. And then Detroit, I needed to make it back home to Raleigh. And I go, well, that's, that's not my, my idea of a good time. I'd like to be there when my kids wake up tomorrow morning. So instead of spending the night in Phoenix, I uh, deadhead home that night back to Atlanta on the same airplane that I flew in, got to Atlanta at like six in the morning, waited an hour and then, you know, took the flight to Raleigh at eight o'clock in the morning. But the, the problem with that was I got home and I was just smashed. I was tired. I was beat down. You know, so when you showed up, you were showing up for your child. It was great that you were home, but you were, you were half a human. And I'm looking at, it, I'm like, is this it? This is as good as, as it gets as me trying to figure out how to steal a couple hours back with my family. And, and I know that's not it. I know that's not the, the lifestyle. And when you get three or four years into it, there's lots of people who make great um, life out of, of the airlines. It just, for an entrepreneur, that concept of sitting in a sterile cockpit was, was like being in a jail cell. Yeah, not ideal for sure. So less than a year than full full-blown business, right? Mm-hmm. Not full-blown, but. Yeah, no full-blown. I mean, I I really haven't touched the cockpit. It's the interesting thing is, you know, we, in our pre-show, we were kind of talking about your buddy there that you had interviewed that was flying around in his airplane. And it's, I still have aspirations and, you know, certainly carry all the qualifications, the medicals to go do it. Um, I just, you know, I wouldn't take you flying. Well, I may, may take you flying, Jeff, because you can sure. land, you know, you can land yourself, but I wouldn't take my wife flying. She can't land herself. So, you know, at this point, I probably need to go dust them off a little bit. Uh, so have you heard of a uh, pinch hitter courses? No. So a pinch hitter course um, is essentially where someone like your wife or even my wife, um, they don't know how to land an airplane. Uh, they can go to the local flight school and the certain flight schools will actually teach them to how to land single engine. Just that airplane. one critical, they don't need to know any, they don't even know how to turn it off. They just need to go land, right? right. Put this thing on the ground and figure it out. I love that. That's great. Yeah. But, but now even with uh, the, uh, the new Cirrus aircraft, are you familiar with Cirrus? So mm-hmm. now they push up a button and, yeah. you know, in the, you know, God forbid likelihood that you're decapitated for, or for whatever reason, you yeah. just push that button and you're good to go. Right. So, yeah, I like it. Very cool. So at, as you started this, this business and as you were venturing into it, um, you know, what, what were some of the early successes and early struggles that, that you dealt with? Well, the success of you. So when I'm talking about entrepreneurship, there's, there's just phases in business and it's usually like, you know, the first half million dollars, the first million dollars, then, then, you know, two and a half million dollars, $5 million, $10 million. And and the business needs different things of you at those different phases. So you, you get wins and that's, I think that's for entrepreneurs is the, the progress that when you get those continued wins, is that was, that's what kind of feeds your energy. 
So those those happen often. There's I mean, there's all kinds of wins. You know, hiring new employees, new offices, um, new assets. You know, whether it's an airplane to you know to teach in or or whatever. There's all kinds of wins. That the challenges, the frustrations. I think what people don't understand about entrepreneurship is that um, you carry a lot of the burden. All you carry all the burden. You know, for right. by and large, and 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 I would say really forever, you're going to carry that burden. So you're going to carry the burden of the payrolls, the the problems that are facing your employees, the growth. It's it's just all you. Uh, you know, I think the interesting thing about that is that as you begin to unconstrain the growth in your businesses is that there's just a, there's this concept that there's nobody prescribing for you what the outcome is going to be. So if you think that your business is going to grow at a 50% year-on-year revenue return, you can. 100% also you can. 200% also you can do that. If you want to you know if you want to let your business die, you can also do that. And it's really only limited by your own creativity and you know Jeff, you and I you know have the same group that we surround ourselves by but that the interesting thing about that group is that when you're around other entrepreneurs it just changes the way that you think. Changes the way that you you see things as possibilities. The you know the limitations are removed in some capacity, and and you know you say, I, well, I can see that someone else did that, so I can clearly do that. And you also get the vote of confidence from someone else that says, I actually believe in you that you can go do that as well. So I think the real the challenge is is that for me, one of the keys to entrepreneurship is that you have to continually think about what a future version of yourself is going to look like. The way that I do that is I think about what I what what are the characteristics of someone that I would hire. If I became, you said, incapacitated, if I hit, get hit by a bus, bus full of nuns, what am I going to look for in that future version of the person who's going to run the company? How much am I going to pay them? How will they be, you know, what is their variable compensation or, you know, equity returns or whatever it is? Uh, and then when I think about the characteristics of that person that I would hire to run my business to take it to the next level, those are the characteristics of the business that I need to assume, to get it to that next level. For sure. I know um, one of my favorite uh, people in the world, Ed Milet, uh, one of his, one of his uh, best quotes, in my opinion, is always being blissfully uh, dissatisfied, right? So mm-hmm. you're grateful for the moment, that. In the moment that you're in, but at the same time, you're always travel, uh, str- uh, striving for that next level. Yeah. And that's something too that, you know, as, as entrepreneurs, we're always, I find myself too, um, having a hard time looking back at what we have accomplished and not necessarily uh, uh, being, I don't want to say not grateful, but not being, uh, you know, wow, I actually did that, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, Ed, when you, when you say it out of context and you hear what Ed's saying there about being blissfully dissatisfied, it it does have what you said there, a lot of gratitude. And that's the blissful component is, is that you're, completely comfortable and and feel confident about where you are but that dissatisfaction is that growth and it's actually if you if you haven't heard ed describe it before it's hard it's hard to think about because you, you go, well you don't want to be dissatisfied well it's not it's not that i'm dissatisfied in my present conversely i'm extremely satisfied i'm extremely present in the present, I'm here enjoying the life. And I, I mean, I am right now. I'm looking out over the water in Charleston, South Carolina. I love my life. It's a beautiful life today. But it doesn't mean that I might not be wanting to look out over a Montana ranch tomorrow or over the Caribbean tomorrow. And that dis- dissatisfaction 
is what brings in that hunger. And I, I do, I subscribe to it. I don't think you can take a, you know, take a snapshot of the blissful dissatisfaction that Ed talks about and, and see the context or, or the merit without listening to him talk about it. Absolutely. And, and another point that you brought up too is surrounding yourself with like-minded people, right? I know mm-hmm. you and I are part of a program, uh, Apex Entourage, right? And uh, we, we like FOC, right? Family of choice. And I know that I've, I've personally have purged my Facebook list of oh, like over 500 people just because of the nonsense of whatever they post. It just, you know, we, we only have so much given energy per day to make the decisions that we need to make, not only for ourselves, but for our business, for our families. And like seeing that, seeing the, the wins and successes of other people and them sharing it really helps um, just because typically that, you know, the average person is, is uh, more negative than they are positive. Yeah, Jeff, I mean, there's, there's a, an enormous amount of merit there and, and we could go on for you know, very lengthy discussion about that is that just by assuming a position of gratitude, you completely change the opportunities. I, you know, I, one of the things I talk about a lot is is our box, and we we talk about you know when folks say military is really bad about it, think outside the box, and. And I, I, I just take massive offense because it's not physically possible for you to think outside the box. If you were able to think outside the box, you would have these unconstrained growth ideas that you were able to continually implement day after day. And you, you can't. So, so first and foremost is having an understanding of what the box is. And the box is more or less defined by four things. It's defined by your experiences. It's defined by your emotions your values and your desired outcomes. And obviously can't change your experiences, right? Of what's in the past. I can change the experiences by seeking education. I mean, this, you know, podcasts are an incredible resource. People give an enormous amount of information away and in a correct sequence for you to learn things. Um, Read a book, take a course, pay some money, whatever it is to go learn these new skill sets. So I can change the bottom side of the box. The top side of the box is an interesting discussion. Most people's values don't change over the course of our lives. But for those that do, when you assume a new identity, and I, the example that I always give is parenting. You, you, are you a parent, Jeff? I'm not, no. Yeah, so, so you'll, you'll okay. see this one day is that it's the one time in your life where you change your identity. So yesterday you were not this thing and tomorrow you will be this thing. It's, you don't do that in aviation. Yesterday you said, I would like to be a student pilot. And for like two more years to go, you still say I'm a student pilot. And then sometime later you say, I'm going to be a pilot or a, you know, ATP commercial, whatever it is. The one time in your life where you instantly become a new person is when you become a parent and that value shift changes as well. The things that I used to think about that I valued before I became a parent, I no longer value staying up late, going out, partying, drinking, you know, having fun with my friends. I no longer value traveling all around the world. I don't value, I travel a lot now, but I don't value it to the point that I used to. And the reason is when you go all the way to the top and you change your identity first, you change the values below that. And that's entrepreneurship. And this is like, a, you know, the hard part is this understanding of the fake it to make it concept mm-hmm. is that I'm not asking you to fake it. I'm asking you to believe in yourself at the entrepreneurial level, at the identity level that I have already become that person and I am on a predestined path to walk down that. And when you do that and you say, I am a business owner, I am an investor, I'm an entrepreneur, whatever it is, then my value set changes. And then my capabilities, beliefs, behaviors, attitudes, and then finally my environment changes around it. 
So I, you know, kind of going off on a tangent a little bit to, to say, Jeff, there that when you talk about your emotions, when you say that most people are generally negative, it's so true. We assume the worst in people when say, somebody says something, we assume that they're passing judgment. But when interesting thing about judgment is that they're really judging you on the way that you're judging them. And when you can see that people are generally only reflecting you in themselves, it becomes this crazy meta view of this. So if you can begin to control your emotions and say, that's not a negative situation. I mean, I'll tell you right now, one of my business partners uh, last night had a had an issue with his email, dumped his whole email, boom, gone. And it's like, what meanings do you decide that you're going to give to that dumping of the email? Well, the irony of that was we had already discussed transitioning the email to a new service provider anyway, and it was an error that he had done. And in that transition, he said to me, I've got this pit in my stomach, right? It feels, you know, it feels empty. And it's true, you can feel that way. But by simply changing the emotions to that of something of gratitude to go, well, I was already going to do this anyway. Now this is just a forced transition for me to be able to accelerate that. And it's actually going to make it easier in the long run because I'm putting more systems and processes into my business. So, you know, emotions and feelings are such a hard thing to grasp. And when you do, it has the greatest impact on your business. Absolutely. So what what are some of the things that, um, you know, outside of, of Apex that you've invested in yourself for, for being a business owner? Oh, I invest. I mean, I invest heavily. I spend an enormous amount of money on coaches and, and groups. Um, I, I fully believe in that, you know, we didn't really close that, you know, how do you think outside the box? We don't. The, the way that I think out the box is I borrow other people's box. I just simply look at someone who has a more broader, more wider view of the world and I would ask them the same question that I'm facing. If this is a challenge that I'm facing in my business, which I have lots of, how would you solve it, Jeff? And then you're going to look at it from your own frame of reference. And by you looking at it from your frame of reference, I'm able to borrow from your box. I don't have to change my values, my desired outcomes, my experiences and my emotions. I just need to ask you how you would look at it. So first and foremost, I I participate in groups. I spend money on making sure that I'm surrounding myself with people who are doing things in the version that I want to be doing them. So I've never grown a hundred million dollar business. So if I want to grow a hundred million dollar business, then I need to surround myself with people who have grown a hundred million dollar businesses because I want to see what they see. And I'm going to just borrow from their box, from their view. That's awesome. And books, podcasts, YouTube, there's so many sources out there for people that they can learn anything that they want to learn. It's just a matter of applying that and not Mm -hmm. being a typical average person. Yeah. So with, with your, with the uh, defense contracting business that you have, explain a little bit more about, you know, what, what you do um, that's not classified or, yeah. or secret, right? But what, what, what does your company do? Well, you know, the majority of it is classified. I mean, you can go, you can go super sleuth me. It's not that hard to figure out what my businesses are, but uh, you know, we, we are an aviation service provider. And, and one of the things that we really draw is the tactical experience and intelligence solutions. So we think of, uh, we think of airplanes as assets, extensions of the you know intelligence arm, and it's a, it's an information provider. So we're really more interested in, in the Intel component of, it. we're more interested in how do we leverage the capability? What assets can I put onto it? What sensors can I put onto it? And then we really, we bridge that gap down to um, unmanned systems as well. So we we teach the same thing that we teach to special operations command. We teach to local and state law enforcement, and you know that's that's really the the true crossover is that when we have the ability to to tell them some of those things, here's the best practices and commonalities that we see in tactical aviation, and we can now bring to you at a much more affordable level that you you know you get that eye in the sky that you were not once afforded the opportunity to have. 
For sure. So you, you forgive me for my ignorance on this. So you're you're more like, uh, do you sell products that are attached to aircraft, drones? What, what you know? What does that look like? Yes. Perfect. Awesome. We do we do a lot of that stuff. It's a lot of services, but we're you know we're very interested in the technology associated with it as well. Very cool. So m- moving forward, you know what what is something that I know you mentioned that maybe you might want to uh, invest in the airplane in the future. You know what what does the future of of your businesses and and just uh, o- overall uh, growth look like, looks like? Challenger six hundred four. Anybody, anybody selling one? Um, you know, f- future. Well, that's a that's a great question. Um, uh, starting an airline, one of the things we're looking at is, you know, how do you start a Part One Thirty Five airline? That's that's okay. that's in the growth trajectory there. Uh, personally, aviation wise, I, I've been discovering, you know, what would it look like? My my question for myself is, you know, and you you can appreciate this is, well, like what size airplane? I could fly them all, right? I mean, I like I it's I could fly a G six fifty. It doesn't matter. But do I want a G six fifty? That's a whole lot of airplane to go, you know, fly around to try to get yourself. So it's this it's this constant balance of how do you want to live live your life? And for me, you know, we live in in the southeast and we want to go travel to the Midwest and the West Coast and and you know South. It's like, well, probably the best way to do that is hop on a you know, front side of somebody else's chartered airplane or, or the backside of it, or just hop in a Delta Airlines first class seat. <laughs> you know, so it's hard. I, I think for me, one of the aviation components is I'll probably look at like a Meridian or something that's, you know, small. I, I love the King Air Series airplanes, especially the new ones. So that may be something we're looking at as well. Very cool. Yeah. I know that, that new, uh, oh man, of course I'm drawing a blank right now. Uh, M600 Piper. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. It's just, it, such a good looking mm-hmm. aircraft mm-hmm. and the business applications to it are phenomenal. Yeah. So within, with your aviation career and, and the missions that you've flown, what's, what's one of the most uh, memorable moments that you've had? And that's a good one. You should have teed me up for that one, Jeff. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't prepare for that. <laughs> I, I've got a lot of memorable ones. Um, what's one that might stick out more so than, you know? yeah, I mean, they're all fun, right? You know, the first of anything is always fun. So the first flight in a Cessna 152, 172, you, you get big, almost bigger iron, right? So, you know, uh, T6, T38, the first flights are always fun. Um, it's the exhilaration. Uh, new cockpits are always fun. Um, you know, even even flying the 737 landing and landing in uh, 737 in Chicago is, I've got, I've got the hundreds of stories. I, you know, I'll, just a fun one there. I flew a King Air at Charlotte Douglas Airport one time and I was, I didn't want to do the, um, the standard like uh you know progressive taxi because i didn't want to i was embarrassed for them to like you know turn left on charlie three right on alpha two and i'm like okay i'll just take the eastern runway well the problem was on the eastern runway that was in the departure flow of the heavies they, they were taken off out of charlotte <laughs> so i asked for the runway and they said best speed uh, best speed to the marker and so i kept it going i think i was like 160 or something i don't remember what the gear speed in the king air was but i'm i'm boot scooting buggy up there to the marker and i you know i get slowed down and i and i'm like looking over there and i'm I'll, I'll not say my language for you know the purpose of this podcast, but I'm looking over. It's like 737, A320, 737, you know, 787. It's like, oh God. So I so I kept the speed up. I I you know boogied it down the runway and then I I took the high speed and I nearly rolled the tires off. I bought I bought all four tires. All four tires had to be replaced. Oh, like, my goodness. You buffoon, you, you know, and it's it's expensive. But you know, that's the 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 biggest thing in, in all of my life and all of my career that the A10 is such a, you know, a, a, a 
great equalizer. And the story that I tell is that I, you know, I never picked a single fight, but I ended a bunch. And there's, there's some affinity. Um, we got into a fight one night in Eastern Afghanistan and um, somebody had gotten hurt and they airlifted the guy back out. We actually went over to the, the field hospital at Bagram Air Force Base. And we went to go see the guy that got hurt. You know, here we are in our, you know, flight suits and looking pretty ragged because we've flown for a couple hours. And that guy had just an enormous amount of gratitude because we ended the fight for him and, and he was able to live to fight another day. And that amount of gratitude, it's just irreplaceable from an aviation component when you can be responsible for keeping someone alive. Love that. Well, look, I, I do appreciate your time today, sir. If, if people want to connect with you and maybe find out more about what you do or uh, you know, what, where are some good channels that they can uh, check you out at? You can find me all over the socials, Luke Lehman. Um, you can go to my web, website, lukelehman.com is a great place to start. And you can send me any of those email links on there, but you can also just find me on the socials. I'm all, all over the place. Love it. So to end, to end the podcast, what is one leadership principle that if you could share with others, um, you know, that I know leadership is very broad, but what, what's one principle that you would want to share with the listeners? Yeah. It, you know, I, th- those things change for me quite often because I don't think it's one. I, I think that the the principles of leadership are quite dynamic. Um, it's the thing that's just resonating right now is just to stay hungry. And if you can keep your energy up and you can continue to look for that next marker and that next ridgeline, it's always available. You know, the irony, Jeff, is that the reason the reason businesses fail I, I truly do believe this has nothing to do with the market has nothing to do with um, the product line. It's, you know, some cases, the product line, they probably can't sell a whole lot of VHF VHS receivers at this point, but it has everything to do with the, the person at the top and the entrepreneur. And if you can just stay hungry, if you can stay curious, stay inquisitive, continue to learn, surround yourself with people that are you know like-minded, you will continue to win time and time and time again. Love that. Well, again, thank you for your time today and y'all go connect with Luke. I'm sure that, uh, you know, he would love to be able to get a couple of messages and I know he'll he'll be more than happy to, to answer anything you might have for him. Thanks, Jeff. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning into the Leaders of Aviation podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. 